city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Lance, so great to have you back on a thread of evidence. And as our ballistics expert, I just want to throw a few things to you. And the the thing that happens a lot in my classes when I'm teaching the uh, civilian self-defense, concealed carry, you know, license to carry, all these different uh, things that we call carrying a concealed weapon while you're a civilian, the question that comes up all the time in our classes is, what's the best gun to carry? Great question, Doc. I've been asked that many times myself. First and foremost, it's the gun that you have with you. Sitting on the counter at home doesn't do you any good. Now, with that aside, the gun that you can shoot accurately. It's very important to remember, misses don't count. And in fact, to emphasize that even a little more, Misses can be detrimental in that they can injure an innocent bystander, create unwanted damage. So hits count. Now, how do we get to that point? How do we maximize hits on target as well as maximizing stopping potential? I think that's a great question. Let's go into that. Okay. Now... Looking at the wounding capability of firearms, pretty much when we're talking about handguns, and it's important to differentiate between handguns and long guns, rifles, uh, because of velocity differences. So dealing with handguns, you need to look at capacity. You need to look at concealability. And you need to look at the ability of the individual to put shots on target. And when you're talking about capacity, what we're referring to is the amount of uh, ammunition that the gun carries. Absolutely. Not all situations require a high-capacity firearm. Concealability may override your application in some events as opposed to knowingly going into an encounter where shots will be fired. Consequently, you choose the firearm for an application, very similar to choosing a car. If you want to go fast, you want to get from point A to point B, you might choose a a sports car. Now, if you're just going to the grocery store and back, you pick a station wagon, currently, you know, a small SUV, the family car in general. Now, there's a lot to consider just between those two cases. The sports car, the race car, costs you more money. It requires a higher degree of skill as a driver, and it also requires more maintenance. So a maintenance would translate into 
training and proficiency on the part of the driver as well as the mechanical aspects. Family car, you get in, you turn the key, and you go. No thought behind it. You know, you've raised some really good points because uh, I get people that come into my you know, CCW classes and the sheriff allows people to put six weapons on their permit. And I always say to my students, why do you want to put six guns on your permit? Because what you're ultimately going to do is you're just going to confuse yourself. I always look to behavior and what's going to happen in a millisecond, having been there and done that, you know, these shootings go down very, very quickly, especially with an assailant. They, they usually come at you by surprise. And so you're already behind the curve. Uh, they might even have the drop on you. And don't forget, you know, we're wearing concealed, you know, a concealed weapon means that it's concealed somewhere on our person, usually under a jacket or under a shirt or something like that. And I tell them, look, you know, you don't have to, you don't want to have to get into the situation where you're saying to yourself in that millisecond, well, let's see, it's Tuesday. Do I have the Smith & Wesson? Do I have the Kimber? Do I have the Ruger? And does it have a safety? Does it not have a safety? Is it on the right side, the left side? You know, by then, hey, guess what? The gunfight's already over. So, you know, me personally, I only carry two different weapons. You know, I carry it, and I carry it for the environment and the clothing I'm wearing. Okay, so... A lot of times, you know, as an old cowboy, I'm, I'm walking around with, with uh, you know, cowboy boots and jeans, and uh, I get the jeans a little bit bigger, and I take uh, my 9mm, uh, which is a small pocket Ruger, and, uh, and I take that, and I stick that in a sticky peat holster that we can, you know, what is that? That's a holster that will conceal the profile of the weapon but stick to the inside of the pants so it doesn't come out when you draw it or I'm wearing board shorts or something in this in the summertime I want to be able to have easy access to that firearm and shoot it where other times uh, where I'm in a real serious neighborhood and I'm wearing maybe a jacket or something that will conceal a larger weapon that's when I bring out my Glock 40 but both weapon systems are very simple and as a matter of fact, where I'm going to is I'm going to the smaller Glock, the 9mm Glock, because I don't even have to worry about, you know, all the other intricacies of, of that gun, including the safety mechanism, because the Glock has an internal safety. Absolutely, Doc. You beat me to the punch, sort of saying, uh, in a few aspects. But to go over and clarify those, if you're not a shooter... If you're not shooting on a regular basis, your first important priority is a firearm which is user-friendly. Okay. Now, for most firearms, for most people, you're looking at either a double-action revolver or you're looking at a similar type of semi-automatic pistol design, such as a Glock such as a double-action only semi-auto in one of the various major manufacturers. Uh, and the reason I stress that is you pull it out, you pull the trigger. You don't have to worry about is the safety on, is the safety off? Is there a round in the chamber? Do I need to cycle the slide? Uh, does it have a grip safety? Am I, grip, am I gripping it too high or too low? Um, you want it user-friendly. 
people under stress do strange things, and a lot of times those strange things do not equate to a good situation. You know, you raised a really good point. You know, in one of our previous programs that we did together, Lance, we talked about the aspect of, uh, of recoil. How important is that when a person is selecting a firearm? Because, you know, we have such diverse people in our classes. Uh, we have women, small-framed uh, women, women with small hands. We get senior citizens uh, with not a lot of uh, wrist uh, and grip strength. And, you know, I see them coming into my classes and they're getting guns that are way too big for them. Can maybe, can we discuss how a person that has never purchased a gun before, what kind of things should they consider and what kind of questions should they ask when they walk into one of these gun shops? Absolutely. Uh, let's go back to one of my earlier comments. Hits on target is the number one priority. Okay, now, Certainly recoil is one of those considerations. If you pull the trigger and the recoil is so great, it takes you five minutes to come back on target, what good is it? The gunfight's over. Um, If you miss pull the trigger and you miss your target, your assailant, a miss is a miss. You haven't done anything. The bullet passing by isn't going to shock them into stopping their aggressive action. So hits on target are important. Now, looking at hits on target, recoil is certainly important. If you can't handle the recoil, if your recovery time is too great, you need to go to a smaller firearm, smaller caliber. And for your audience, it's very important to keep in mind also that it's a combination of firearm weight as well as caliber. You can take a 22 and put it in, which is a very low recoil caliber uh, firearm, you can put it into a mini revolver and the recoil is significant. It's hard to control. It's hard to hold the firearm. And that'll introduce another aspect now. So part of controlling the recoil is being able to grip firmly the firearm. Is there a difference, Lance, between the way that a person grips a semi-automatic pistol as opposed to a revolver? There is a slight difference, uh, but if you're staying with the same grip style, you can interchange between the two. The important thing is not so much the grip style in and of itself, it's the trigger action, the trigger mechanism how you pull that trigger. Uh, That's why I like double action uh, semi-automatic pistols. You know what, let's, you you brought up the aspect of uh, double action. I'm sure the people that listen to this show, uh, a lot of those people understand the difference between single action and double action, but there's some people that are brand new to this show and and brand new to, to firearms. Can you just sort of explain the difference between a uh, a single action pistol and a double action pistol, a single action revolver versus a double action revolver. Uh, certainly. Uh, let's start with the revolver. It's the simpler of the two. Now, you can think of it in terms of a double action revolver. You pull the trigger. 
and when you pull the trigger, two things happen. The trigger moves to the rear, cocking the hammer, so the hammer moves to the rear. That's action number one. And action number two is when you reach the rearmost rotation of the trigger, the hammer falls forward. That's action number two. So you have two things happening when you pull the trigger. Cocks the hammer, releases the hammer. In a single action firearm, single action revolver, you manually have to pull the hammer to the rear. So like the old cowboy movies, right? Where they're pulling that that hammer back and sometimes even fanning that, that hammer. Absolutely. Pulling the trigger on a single action gun really does nothing except release the hammer. But if the hammer is in a down or forward position, nothing happens. So single action, when you pull the trigger, only one thing happens. That's releasing the hammer. And that's why when you transition now, speaking of pistols, semi-automatic pistols, you have single-action pistols, such as the classic 1911 A1, uh, originally manufactured by, uh, designed by Colt. You have double-action only. Uh, and to point out, although Glock refers to their trigger mechanism as a safe action, that's more like a double-action-only type mechanism in terms of being user-friendly than it would be a single action. And then you have what would be generally described as a traditional double-action pistol, where the first shot is double-action, where you pull the trigger, it cocks the hammer, uh, releases the uh, hammer, fires a cartridge, then as the firearm cycles, it goes into a single action. Right, so it automatically cocks it back, and you did a great job on one of our previous shows where you described the entire cycle of operation. So, Lance, what are the user aspects with regards to, you know, single and double action weapons? Well, now that I've described the mechanical uh, function of the two, as far as the individual shooter is concerned, double action the trigger pull on that is typically much longer and heavier than that of a single action. Uh, typically, double action guns have a trigger travel of half inch, could be as great as three quarters of an inch on some firearms. And trigger pull weight can be anywhere between seven and maybe 12 pounds, relatively heavy. And this translates into generally a concerted effort on the part of the shooter to pull the trigger. And you know, you bring up something that's I think very important for the senior citizens uh, and people that have weak, uh, their, their hands are weak, and that is the trigger pull. Now, I never want anybody uh, to get a gun nor manipulate a gun, you know, in a gun shop to make to, to, to transition that gun from a, a heavy trigger pull of like 12 pounds, let's say, down to something like 4 pounds because, boy, that gun goes off before you know it. But I think they should be aware when they go to the gun store and they pull the trigger on a gun to test it to make sure that they have enough grip uh, to be able to even manipulate that gun or they might 
have to look at a different gun. Would you agree or disagree with that? Absolutely, Doc. And to finish up with the single action aspect, single action requires a very short trigger pull, a very light trigger pull. Uh, trigger pulls typically in the area of three to five pounds and a trigger travel of maybe even as short as, as one sixty-fourth of an inch worth of travel. Very, very little. And that's why most law enforcement agencies prohibit the use of single action uh, firearms because of the possibility of an unintentional discharge. That's absolutely correct. I remember uh, many years ago the Los Angeles Police Department uh, with their detectives where they gave them detective models, they actually filed off the hammer so they couldn't uh, put the gun in, uh, in, in single action. Uh, correct. And if you look at Smith & Wesson, for instance, they offer one or two different models which are double action only, shrouded hammers. You have to fire the gun double action. There is no single action function. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com where the conversation never ends. The 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli. And I'm Linda Martinelli. As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter. Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness. And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our Response to Active Shooter training course. Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member. Our Response to Active Shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant, and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs. So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims. Our Response to Active Shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event. So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today. Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com, and be safe out there. You know, Lance, the next question that my students ask me, and I even get this question by some of my police officers in classes, is what's the best bullet for that gun, or what's the best ammunition to carry? Well, first and foremost, Doc, is the gun and the ammo have to work together. They have to be reliable. If you're using ammunition that won't cycle the gun properly, reliably, you're out of luck. Don't even consider it, even though it may be the latest and greatest invention on the market, or at least per advertising. Uh, What you're looking for, and this has been uh, a technology development, mostly over the last 25 years or so, 
where ammunition expansion characteristics have become very important. Uh, Basically, when you're looking at how a bullet, and remember uh, from our first episode, the bullet is the actual projectile, the part that is expended from the barrel of the firearm. Now, when the bullet strikes an object, let's say an individual, and this would be talking specifically in terms of wound ballistics, what does that bullet do? How does that bullet interact with tissue or clothing? which the individual is probably wearing. These are all factors. Well, up until the last 25 years or so, most of your bullets were either a full round nose or solid projectile, basically uh, non-deforming or very difficult to deform. Is that like ball ammo when people refer to something like fully metal jacketed and ball ammo? Full metal jacket, round nose, it could be all lead, it could be have a copper jacket on it. But basically ammunition, which is designed to penetrate and not necessarily expand. Uh, as a result, because of differences in manufacturing, uh, layering, uh, soldering the external copper jacket to the core, lead core of a bullet, hardness of that lead core, uh, hollow cavities, a hollow point bullet, all of these changes, and there are some others too that are very esoteric, um, combine to give you better expansion. And why expansion is good when, as a anti-personnel ammunition is you're trying to incapacitate your aggressor as immediately as possible, as fast as possible. And bullets act in two ways when it comes to stopping an individual. And this is all based on physical science. Uh, There's no black magic type of formulas. People are stopped either immediately as a result of a central nervous system hit. You uh, disable the brain, you disable the spinal column, so physically they cannot move. And now you're getting into my areas. <laughs> yeah, and the second, because this is really good. I'm glad we're having this conversation. Second way? And the second way is a psychological incapacitation. All right. Now, psychological incapacitation, we're going to take that off the table because you can't always count on it. Different personalities will react different ways. So now, going back to the physical aspect, we have a central nervous system hit. That's immediate. But what happens if you miss? Uh, you get shot through the chest area, let's say. Well, that's definitely physical damage, and you're creating a wound channel. As a bullet strikes tissue, it creates a permanent wound channel. And that's where this technology over the last 25 years comes into play, is the larger the wound channel, the greater the tissue damage, the greater the tissue damage, the greater the bleeding. And that's what we refer to as exsanguination. We want to be able to get them to bleed out. Absolutely. Once you're out of blood, your brain cannot function. So we've got two physical, mechanical aspects of incapacitation. Now, a shot to the head with a twenty-two. 
is just as good as with a nine millimeter or a 45. Doesn't make any difference. It's about where it hits you in the head. Shot placement, and that is so critical. And that's why it's such a big important on selecting the right firearm. You know, let me just bring up something. One of my very earlier cases when I was a brand new officer, I had a woman who committed suicide and she had a pocket pistol and it was a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol. She went out in the parking lot in her wheelchair. She put the gun up to her head and she fired, put put a, a hole in her head didn't penetrate the entire skull, I think it was kind of old ammunition, actually traversed over the top of her head and came out the the side, but didn't really do any damage. You know what? She did that three times before she got it right. So you're absolutely right. It's all about shot placement. Absolutely. And that actually is a good demonstration of Differences in ammunition, velocity, bullet design, the projectile design, uh, 25 auto, uh, typically that's a uh, full metal jacket round nose. That's what those were. Non-deforming, uh, hits an object, and has a high tendency to deflect off. And with something like a skull, relatively hard, thick bone in some areas, it will deflect off. Now... More than likely, if you'd have changed the shape of that projectile, same velocity, same bullet weight, same caliber, everything's the same, but it's a different shape, so that it is maybe a flat point or possibly even a lead round nose expanding type bullet. Uh, It probably would have penetrated as opposed to deflecting and traveling around the skull. So going from there, uh, we're talking about wound channel bleeding out rapidly. Hull points, and to clarify the point, a lot of people today still consider a hollow point bullet, bullet design, hollow cavity, as being illegal, as a dum-dum bullet. Right, which is totally different. Do you want to describe what a dumb, bun, dumb, dumb bullet really is, Lance? Absolutely. And this, this goes back to the 1800s, the dum-dum arsenal, and there really was one in India, British arsenal. Uh, in that time, it was discovered that the ammunition that they were using, rifle ammunition, full metal jacket design, was non-expanding. It was discovered that by cutting the nose of the bullet off, removing the hard metal jacket, and exposing the soft lead core, the bullet would expand, and therefore, uh, in taking out incapacitating uh, animals for the hunting uh, uh, applications, it would occur much more rapidly. And that was a result of greater tissue damage. The permanent cavity, the hole formed as the bullet going through the tissue was larger in diameter and therefore bled more profusely. This has been incorporated in the last 25 years into bullet design. So if you look at the majority of your police agencies across the US, they use hollow point ammunition. So, 
It's not restricted only to law enforcement. Civilians can buy it. And it's actually a safer round for self-defense purposes. And I would say that it's a safer round in uh, the environment that a lot of police officers work in, which is an urban environment, or maybe they're shooting inside of a building, inside of a room, or, or something like that. Uh, and they need to have that bullet expand. They don't want it to be penetrating through uh, different walls and things like that. Is, is that a good thought process or not? Well, to add on to what you just uh, mentioned, hollow point ammunition is designed to expand. So you're doing several things at once. If you are striking your assailant, it expands, it creates more tissue damage, uh, faster incapacitation. That usually means less shots need to be fired. Correct. Less shots fired means there's a less chance of a missed shot and an innocent bystander being struck. Now, again, with hollow point ammunition, if a miss occurs, the bullet strikes an object, deforms much quicker, and loses some of its energy. And I think that's probably the point I was trying to raise there. Absolutely. And when it deforms and loses its energy faster, the likelihood of a fatal uh, second strike to an innocent bystander is greatly reduced. And I think people misunderstand uh, how officers are trained to shoot. You know, they think we shoot to kill. That is not how officers are trained. Officers are trained to stop the threat. And how many bullets it takes to stop a threat is dependent on so many variables, right? Absolutely. We're all people, which means we're all human, and individuals react differently to stress situations. As a result, if, uh, in fact, this was a case that I did uh, shortly after uh, coming on to the uh, sheriff's lab, we had a deputy-involved shooting where it started off as a hot stop, uh, vehicle stop. The driver jumped out of the vehicle and started running at the deputy with a knife in his hand. And this is at a distance of about 35 feet initially. Deputy unholsters, starts to fire. The deputy ended up firing his last shot, emptying his magazine, as the suspect actually reached the deputy and hit the car door with a knife. Wow. Uh, the deputy was pretty much a basket case. Didn't realize that that could occur. Um, uh, later on, attending the autopsy, it was obvious that the deputy had struck his assailant six times out of, um, actually this was with the uh, uh, Glock 40s, so it was uh, a total of 15 shots fired. So we had a number of misses, and as we discussed, misses don't count. Right. And none of those six shots that struck his assailant was in a central nervous system strike. You know, let me just bring up something, and, and I'm going to burst a bubble as far as police shooting mystiques are, and, and I don't think that the, the average 
person out in the public knows that all of our scientific studies of real officer-involved shootings show that the average gunfight between an officer and an assailant takes place in about 2.5 seconds, an average of four rounds are fired, but the accuracy rate of the officer at distances of only 2 to 10 feet are only 12 to 14 percent. So that means that 86 percent of the time officers are missing. Well, other things can account for it. You know, 66% of all officer-involved shootings take place in low-light or no-light conditions. But you and I have worked so many cases together where officers have fired so many rounds, and the impact uh, on the suspect has either been none or minimal. Absolutely. And this is because officers can miss. That's why they are trained to shoot to stop. When the physical aggressiveness has ceased, they know that the hostility has ceased. That, that's a visual, physical sign that they can use to stop fire. And would you agree with me that that's not, I mean, that is exactly the reason why we are never training officers to shoot the knife or the gun out of someone's hand or to shoot them in the leg, you know, to wound them because the accuracy problems are so great in a stress-involved, uh, high-stress-involved, officer-involved shooting. We can't take that chance uh, where we would miss that person and then get killed or have him or her kill someone else. You're talking about officers who are missing adult-sized targets large targets at close distance. How can we reasonably expect them to have the skill and the accuracy under that type of a situation to shoot the gun or knife out of an individual's hand? Especially someone like in your situation uh, that you uh, were involved in, where the guy is actually running at the officer with a deadly weapon like a knife. Absolutely. And keep in mind, too, shooting the knife or a gun out of an aggressor's hand, that hand is moving, too. So you're not shooting at a static, stationary target. So that's unreasonable. It's been proven time and time again. We cannot do this, even trained SWAT officers. So imagine civilians, right, where we're out at the range periodically, training and qualifying with our handguns and civilians may get out to the range maybe once a year or whenever in my case sometimes they come out uh the only time they're at the range is when they're getting ready to requalify for their ccw permit you like a civilian like a law enforcement officer is trained to shoot at the largest target and that's center mass that term comes up a lot of times. Center mass is the torso area of an individual. It's the largest target, and it also has a great collection of vital organs, which, if struck, will increase the rate of bleed-out and, therefore, incapacitation. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli 
forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older. Until now, Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Well, you know, Lance, we're just having a wonderful conversation in regards to what's the best gun, what's the best ammunition, stopping power, gunshot wounds, put-down effect, knock-down effect. Let's try to bring it together and talk about Big guns versus little guns, revolvers versus semis, and uh, give some of our listeners an indication uh, of the differences between these things so they can make uh, an informed decision if they're going to go out there and purchase a handgun or transition to a different handgun. Okay, Doc. Um, as we mentioned earlier, shot placement is number one, and that it still is an important and foremost priority when choosing a handgun. So they've got to be accurate with whatever gun they have. They have to be comfortable with that handgun, user-friendly. If it's a complicated firearm, you're going to make a mistake under stress. You don't want that. You want it as user-friendly as possible. Going back to the analogy of the family car versus a sports car. Keep it simple. My preference through my many years of doing this is revolvers are great. Uh, although I'm a semi-auto person myself. Me too. Uh, we tend to shoot more than the average individual. But revolver is nice. And there are certain applications where a revolver outshines all others. Uh, and this is typically with a firearm which is a heavy concealed firearm, uh, which may need to be fired within the concealed holster or the clothing. Revolvers, for instance, uh, model 642 Smith & Wesson, hammerless revolver, five shot. You can have that positioned in a jacket pocket, well within the pocket, and fire it from inside the pocket. And I'm glad you brought that up because my wife and I last year bought two of those. (laughs) (laughs) Good choice. I have one myself as well as my wife. Now, 
The 642 is a lightweight firearm. It has a little bit more recoil, but this is a deep cover firearm. If fired from within the pocket, you can fire it all five shots. It's going to work reliably. It has an internal hammer, fully covered. It can't snag on anything. Whereas opposed to a Model 36, let's say, same basic gun with an external hammer. That hammer can snag on clothing. And going one step further, a semi-automatic pistol that has a reciprocating slide. You're going to get one shot off, more than likely. After that, more than likely, the gun's going to jam. The slide is going to snag on clothing. It's not going to extract and eject proper uh, cycle of operation. Cycle of operation, yes. So after that first shot, if you don't get it done, you're out of action. Right. So it's important to keep in mind the application, how you're dressing. Now let's look at semi-autos. Semi-autos nowadays are very small. They can be reliable in most applications, but semi-autos require a higher degree of experience on the shooter part, a better quality ammo, and I'd like to point out too, if you go the semi-auto route, you need to buy that good ammo, that expensive ammo you want to use in it, at least initially, take it out and put at least a hundred rounds through the gun. That does two things. It shows that the gun will function with that ammo, and more importantly, it shows that you can handle the gun so it can function properly. You know, I really agree with you on that. And, you know, once you put that hundred rounds through that semi-automatic gun, Then what you can do is you can switch to ball ammo, but you want to get store-bought, you know, good quality, even ball ammo, you know, fully metal jacketed that. But, you know, let me go back over something that you brought up, and it's something that I tell my students and my my off-duty officers and my detectives. I tell them, dress for success, and that means make sure you get a good quality holster. Whether it's in, you know, inside the waistband or outside the waistband, make sure that it's not a piece of junk. It's got to be, you're going to spend some money on it, but you're talking about an insurance policy on your life. And then also make sure that you buy the right clothing you know, to, for your weapon system, which not only means your gun and your holster, but don't forget, you want to carry a magazine pouch you know, with one or two mags. Absolutely. And... Along the lines of your dress for success. If I'm a bad guy and I'm thinking of robbing you, I'm going to take a close look at you first. If I can see that bulge from your firearm, I know you're armed. I'm still going to rob you, but I'm going to approach you very differently. You'll never get a chance to use that gun. And, you know, I want to bring up something again about the clothing because I see so many people out there wearing clothing that gives people an indication that they're, number one, might be an armed civilian, or, number two, 
you're a police officer off duty. So you've got to be very careful about the clothing you wear. And as a matter of fact, I, I think you and I do a great job. Uh, you know, we're out here in Europe, uh, uh, you know, this week. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But you and I are not wearing clothing at all that sticks out. You and I are blending in like chameleons. You don't want to be out there wearing bright clothing, uh, things that are going to attract the attention of a terrorist or a, an active shooter or a robber or something. You want to just blend in with the fabric of the environment that you're in. Wouldn't you agree with that? We're just a couple of nondescript tourists. <laughs> exactly. That's all we are, and we work at it. Yeah. Now, so we're wearing clothing that doesn't set us apart, but adequately conceals what we're carrying. Now, that holster is critical because if you end up getting in a physical encounter, uh, even if it's something as simple as being bumped around in a crowd, you don't want to drop your gun. Extremely embarrassing at the least. More importantly, it could be life-threatening in a more serious encounter. So a good holster, a good security system whether it's leather, whether it's Kydex, whatever works for you is critical. So now we're looking at a concealable firearm. You're looking at dressing appropriately, securing the firearm appropriately. You're having most of the important elements. But keep in mind, the most important is shots on target, which means you have to be comfortable with a reliable firearm. Choice of firearm, choice of ammo. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I like semi-autos, but for a ultra-concealable firearm, I carry a revolver. You know, that, that's a good point. Uh, I really like the new revolvers, the, the new Smiths that, uh, that Linda and I have, that you and your wife also have, and I'm spending a lot more time out on the range with that. And, you know, when I started on the job, that's all we had. You know, we had six shooters or, you know, wheel guns. And uh, there have been some remarkable um, metallurgy, uh, you know, some technological advancements in those weapons. But then again, you know, meaning, you know, lightweight, lighter weight aluminums or lighter weight, um, you know, what are some of the, the metals that they're using now for some of those revolvers? Uh, aluminum has been real popular. Titanium is, yeah, that's kind of, what I was thinking. is being introduced. Uh, a, a ver variety of different metals as well as manufacturing styles. And they, they, they just don't want to get out of control on putting some magnum ammunition in those weapons uh, because the lighter the weight the weapon, if you're not practicing and things like that, you're going to get some pretty significant recoil. Absolutely. Uh, and as a consumer, as you're purchasing ammo, keep in mind the magnum rounds, the high horsepower, high energy ammo is not necessarily the best ammo for your application. Again, shots on target, recoil control, firearm reliability, and your ability to shoot that firearm reliably. Those all combine to make a total package. You know, I think most of your, your shots are going to take place within an area of either right in front of you, within two feet, 
certainly not more than 30 feet away from you, you know, given the urban crowded conditions or even inside your house. So there's really no reason to have magnum ammunition. As you said uh, quite accurately, it's all about shot placement and putting down and stopping your threat. Absolutely. Uh, And this all fits in, I'll hit on it very lightly, in that the firearm is your last result. Your primary weapon is your brain. Use your head. And if you've got distance, if you've got time, use it to your advantage before you fire that first shot. Well, I'm sure glad you say that because we stress that so much in our firearms classes, our concealed carry classes. I'd rather have you be a very good witness than someone that's going to, you know, shoot that gun when you don't need to shoot that gun, and then you're going to open up a whole can of worms, both criminally and civilly, because, you know, there's in this litigious world, you're just not going to get away with putting someone down, even if they're a super-duper bad guy, and, and not pay some sort of penalty that. And not, not even, I mean, even to talk about the emotional, psychological um, you know, stress that puts that puts it on a person, but of course, you know, going through the legal system, the criminal justice system, and the civil system about that. I love that conversation, but now I want to talk about Europe. You and I are in Florence, Italy, and we spent the last week here, but we've spent the first two weeks um, going throughout Europe from Budapest. Uh, through Austria, through Germany, up into the Netherlands and Holland and Amsterdam. And then we took a plane and we flew down here to Italy. And how many castles do you think you've seen? And how many gigantic, thick walls of fortresses have you seen since we've been on vacation? Doc, I'm just absolutely overwhelmed. It's incredible at the history, not only in terms of what... these individual cultures have done as humanity as a rule but just the technology defensive technology offensive technology we kind of get into that type of stuff now the girls Uh, are out shopping and you and i are looking at armory and you know uh, you know (laughs) things that'll stop you know bullets or arrows and things like that and you and i are just having a blast looking at the, the medieval ages and the way they used to dress and fight their wars. And, you know, I, I couldn't have brought somebody better uh, to a threat of evidence than you to talk about how gunpowder changed a lot of the stuff we've seen with respect to what they wear and how they protect their cities with regards to walls. Can you talk about a little bit about that and, and how, how gunpowder changed everything? Well, I can uh, address that, but I'll do so indirectly. Sure. If we even step back further in time, uh, look at your knights. You know, the development of edged weapons, armor to defeat, protect against those edged weapons. Uh, you see a corresponding advancement as it alternates between offensive and defensive weapons. A perfect example is knights of old, armored knights. All right, very effective against swords, knives, daggers, uh, conventional bows and arrows. Then somebody just happened to design and manufacture a crossbow. Oh, yes, with bolts. Iron bolts. Okay, initially those were deemed illegal, for warfare. 
And the reason for that is crossbows totally defeated the armor of your knight, your battle class, your royal class of citizenry. And you just couldn't have a peasant killing a knight. Good point. Now, what about these walls? You know, yesterday we were in the town of Siena, and I think they had some of the tallest walls and thickest walls I've seen since we've been in Europe. I took a bunch of pictures, and uh, I think the when we walked out, you remember the one wall that was at least 50 feet high, and it looked like it was about 8 feet thick. How did those walls change with regards to cannonry? Initially, those thick walls were necessary for two reasons. Number one, you needed that type of foundation uh, structurally to build the higher walls and to maintain their integrity. But as technology advanced, as weapons advanced, cannons were introduced. So with the advent of cannons, which were very destructive on rock walls, you make the walls thicker, therefore they're more resistant to the cannon fire. But also as an intermediate function to existing walls, uh, it was common practice to hang effectively what we would consider thick carpets. Oh, talk about that, because I had not known about that until you discussed it. They would hang the carpets, and they were often wet. Uh, the additional water uh, would add weight. They would ha hang the carpets away from the wall. There was a space between uh, the battlement, the surface of the uh, stone, and the carpet. The cannonballs would strike the carpet material. It would absorb a lot of the velocity, slow it down, and the balls would either, if they struck the wall, uh, wouldn't do anywhere near as much damage, or they just simply fall to the ground. You know, that's so fascinating, and i got to tell you, in all the movies I've seen about knights and battles and things, I've never seen that device used. And when you brought it up, I was just so fascinated with that. Uh, what about the, talking about the structure of the walls, I, they're not just, some of them, I guess, initially were just up and down, but now we've seen some walls that are slanted. Is that to dissipate the energy or to cause a, a ricochet off those walls, or was that just the style in those days? This is certainly not an area where I'm an expert in, but just looking at the physics involved, uh, structure uh, and engineering played a part. As you go higher, you don't need that thickness in terms of maintaining the integrity of the wall. Uh, plus, it made it easier and quicker to build. In terms of the cannons, once cannons became common, uh, thick castle walls created no obstacle. So that we pretty much saw the end of that era of castle building, if you will, in terms of heavy, thick walls. Cannons defeated those too easily. And you know, Florence is a wonderful example of that, where they eventually just took those walls down. I mean, they're still existing in some areas, but when they started increasing the size of the city, and they moved them back about three, three or four times as the city got bigger, they just 
After a while, they just said, hey, you know, we don't even need these walls anymore. So I think you raised a good point. Hey, I don't know about you, but we're in Florence, Italy, and we've got a million restaurants around us. How about some great Italian pasta in a nice Chianti? Oh, I am totally spoiled. I can't say any more than that. Let's go do it.